How we doing? There it goes. Well, welcome. Good morning. Well, we're in a new series, a beautiful kind of broken, 1 Corinthians. It's a beautiful letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a church located in this lively seaport called Corinth in the first century. And Corinth was an up-and-coming colony, a, a remarkable city uh, that was inhabited by individuals, Roman citizens, young families that moved to this seaport community to start a new life. The opportunity was great. Fantastic opportunity. In fact, there was a lot of trade in Corinth. It was, a, it was located at an isthmus that separated two land masses. And so there were amazing opportunities for trade, for work in, as individuals worked in the field of, as artisans. They acquired land, businesses, and grew their companies and their families. And so Corinth became known as a very powerful and influential city in the Roman world. And here, Paul plants a very small little church in Corinth, and it begins to grow. And Paul now writes back to this little church to encourage it to continue to grow and develop and influence the community of Corinth. And we're going to be studying throughout this year this remarkable letter, learning about development and growth for this small little church called Corinth and how that relates back to us as a church. So I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I encourage you to get a Bible. Maybe get a Bible with margins so that you can write in the notes. Write in the margins some notes. Take some, take some notes as we continue through this week after week and study these various passages as we learn to grow in our faith. So I encourage you to do that. Maybe use your outline as a place to take notes and collect these. And go online if you miss one of the messages. Um, go back and listen and stay current. Maybe make a commitment this year that 1 Corinthians is going to be the letter that you're going to personally study. So here we go. So we're jumping into a brand new series. And, 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 the, and the, the, the whole letter written to the small church by Paul, the Apostle Paul, is written to a, a growing, developing potential, tremendous potential in this small church. And yet it faced several challenges as well. So here we go in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I wanted to read the first nine verses with you as we explore what I consider to be, out of the first nine verses, two key ideas that frame the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. What we're going to find here are two themes, two ideas that Paul wants to come back to over and over again as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. So we need to understand these two key ideas. And you'll hear them repeated over and over again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9. And I'll emphasize them. Here we go. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place 
call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even in the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we find here in this very early section of 1 Corinthians is two key ideas that Paul wants to lay out as a framework, something that we need to continue to go back that's going to build the body of Christ, that's going to build the church. It's grace and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two ideas, you notice it? Grace is mentioned three times. The Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned nine times in this passage. And so what Paul is doing is saying that the church will grow and become something that God wants it to become when we understand what grace is and who Christ is in our lives. Two ideas that are foundational in most early letters written in the Hellenistic period. What we find is this, this idea that the, the use of grace or the use of thanks or welcome or, or, or we want to thank the gods that we all worship. And there was a kind of an introductory comment about thanking the gods and offering this grace. And yet what we find is that Paul uses the same idea that a lot of Hellenistic letters were written from, the same kind of concept, but yet he goes deeper because he relates this grace to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the gospel. And somehow the foundation of our faith is the gospel that establishes the kind of church we are to become something beautiful that Paul is developing. So I want to talk about beauty just for a minute, and then I want to look at these two ideas of grace and the Lord Jesus Christ with you, because beauty seems to be on Paul's mind, something beautiful, something that he wants to develop. He thanks God for them in advance, though they aren't yet the church that they should be, they are becoming because of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, something beautiful, something powerful, something that will shine brightly in this community. And so Paul will come back over and over again to this idea of something beautiful that, the, that God is producing in them through grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, beauty, they say, is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, we say that, don't we? It's what you see. You can see it. And sometimes you see it in a sunset or you see it overtly in a, in a, in a beautiful sunrise or, or, or a, water, a waterfall and, and, and you, you Instagram and it's gorgeous and, and, and it's just like, oh, and all of a sudden your Instagram lights up with the same sunset and you missed it because you were somewhere else, right? Or, or a beauty is in, you know, in a picture of a, of a giggling little boy who's, you know, a grandson of yours, haven't gotten any of those lately, have I? And, and it's just this remarkable little picture of a giggling little six-month-old boy that's happy, and it's beautiful to see this. And, and yet beauty in Paul's eyes is going far deeper. It's something that's internally 
developing in them. It's something within them. It's, it's far deeper. It's, it's rooted deeply in our understanding of who God is. In Psalm 27, we are reminded that we are to seek the presence of God, his holiness, because of his beauty. To seek out his beauty. Beauty comes from God. In fact, Erwin McManus, and I'll quote Erwin McManus because um, he spoke on this concept of beauty And he says basically that it's an extension of God into the universe. I mean, he says in one particular message that I listened to, he said it so eloquently that all that is beautiful is an extension of God himself. We are drawn toward the beautiful because God himself is beautiful. We were designed to live in communion with this beautiful. Our souls are compelled to move toward a beautiful God in perfection. And that beauty that God says that we are to reflect in him is because he, first of all, is something beautiful. And I think the great reflection of the beauty of God is the gospel, what God does in us. It's his extension of who he is through the gospel by grace and the Lord Jesus Christ, that he makes now the church something beautiful. And yet, for many of us, and for those living in Corinth, they didn't feel beautiful. They didn't feel like they were that representation of God. That, that they were far from that. That they were imperfect. They were lacking in so many ways. And, and I, I was reading a, a particular article about some of the struggles in first century And the feelings about feeling imperfect. And this writer ends this article with these words. In conclusion, then there are not three types of people. There's not even two types of people. There's one kind of person. And here it is. I like this. It kind of levels out the playing field. That kind of humankind, in all its glory and depravity, beauty and ugliness, good and evil... Our task is to realize this, that there are no elites, there's no dregs, just, and in their particular words, sinful, imperfect people, all our brothers and sisters, none of whom is so bad that we ourselves with less luck could have been ended up the same way. That there's real potential, that we're all, I like that. There's no elites and dregs, there's no, there's no good and there's bad, there's, there's a humankind that's imperfect. We're all part of that imperfect humankind. It's that, that brokenness of humanity. And yet good God is doing is he wants to pour the gospel into the church, into our lives, to make us something beautiful. And the way I see it is a mosaic. And you know what a mosaic is? It's a fragmented picture of brokenness. Pieces of broken glass that are put together to make this beautiful scene. But here's the wild thing about a mosaic. When the light shines from the backside of a mosaic through the broken shards of glass, the fragmented glass, what do we see? We see the beauty of it. We see the color come out. We see, we see the wholeness of it. This is what God is doing in 1 Corinthians. His desire for us as a church and for this small church in Corinth is is for the light of the gospel to shine through these small fragmented 
pieces of brokenness called us into this beautiful picture of a mosaic representing the gospel. That's what he wants for us. That's where we're headed over this next season is to describe a beautiful kind of broken. I mean, we are part of a church that is to be beautiful, but we're broken. And so how does Paul bring that all together? How does he do it? I think he does it in two ways. First, grace, and second, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. So this morning, first of all, grace. What's this idea? Paul says three times, he mentions, grace to you and peace from God. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God. And then later in verse 7, he says, so that you were not lacking in any gifts or grace gifts or any grace. Paul uses it again in another way. He uses it three ways. But essentially, it's one idea that what God is doing is he's gracing us with something that makes us beautiful. And this is the idea that runs all the way through 1 Corinthians, this idea of grace in the context of the community of faith. And, 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 and you know, we don't understand grace until we truly understand uh, maybe a story about grace. And so God gave us a story in the Old Testament. It's the story of Hosea and Gomer. He called upon a prophet, Hosea, it's a beautiful story, to marry a woman who was a prostitute. She was not deserving of Gomer's love, excuse me, of Hosea's love. Gomer was not deserving of it. She didn't know how to live in that love. She didn't know, know how to live in the security of his love in a marriage relationship with, that was, that was, that was in drenched with love. And so what we find in this amazing story is that she struggles with that and she ends up leaving the marriage. And Gomer pursues her. Excuse me, Hosea pursues Gomer and brings her back into the relationship. And then God looks and says, see, that's what it looks like for me to pursue you as a people, speaking to Israel and speaking to us. We're just like that. We're like Gomer. We don't deserve the love of God. We don't know how to live within the context of God's love. We, are, we, don't, know how, we, don't, we don't know how to, how to even do, pull it off. We don't have it within our own faculty to understand that. We cannot fully comprehend the unmerited, the unearned favor of God. That's what God grants us when he woos us into a relationship with himself invites us in. We don't know how to live within the context of that love. And yet this grace then completely covers over us and envelops us and develops the foundation of the kind of faith and church that we are to live in. And I see that coming out in this idea uh, when Paul identifies the church itself. Paul identifies the ecclesia of Corinth. He names it by name. The word ecclesia is really important here because in the concept, when you understand ecclesia, it comes all the way into the, 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 the true meaning comes from really the Septuagint when, when, uh, when the Hebrew scriptures were written in Greek. 
they, they translated the idea in Deuteronomy of this idea of an assembly. The Israel had assembled and come together as a people of God as the ecclesia. And Paul picks up on that. And in the New Testament, we find the word ecclesia being then the assembly of God's people. That God has chosen you to become part of an assembly, a group of people that have gathered together the ecclesia in his grace. It's because of his grace that we can gather together as an assembly. And yet the problem in Corinth was that there were divisions. There were dividing lines between classes of people. Some were very successful. Some lived at the higher levels of the socioeconomic stratus. Some were magistrates and they took positions of of authority in the community. Some were wealthy. They, they had their own businesses. They owned their own homes. And yet many had nothing at all. And the, the, there began to be formed these divisions among them. There were some, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, some that were rich and some were noble and many that had nothing. And others that were poor. Paul's going to come back to that and talk about the wise and those that are foolish. Those that had wisdom and those that didn't. And there's... There's this continual reminder that there were these divisions. And yet what Paul is doing in the ecclesia is by grace, we become an assembly of a whole group of people. We become a new kind of person in the church. And until we understand that, we will continue to see division and breakdown and classes of people. And yet what Paul is doing is he's calling upon the church to be unified. But how he does it's very interesting. I read a book called The Social Background in Pauline Study, in all the Pauline epistles by Gerd Thiessen. And what Gerd says is that what Paul is doing is he's asking, he's he's challenging those in the higher positions, those in the higher classes of people, those who have worth and value in society, those that have much to do something, to use their privilege and use their opportunity to cross over class lines and offer love. He calls it love patriarchalism. The patriarchs of the society, those at the top, those of the ruling class, those of the privilege. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Those with opportunity to be the patriarchs of a new ecclesia through love, obligated through respect and love to cross those dividing lines and rebuild a whole new kind of community. Now, where does this happen? How, where do we see this? Well, Paul goes on, doesn't he? He goes on to talk about this idea of grace as in grace gifts. I've given you these grace gifts. I, the, you may not lack in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring to spiritual gifts right here in this section. He's saying that you've been graced with gifts. And the gifts that God has given you are not simply the gifts that are being used in the context of the church, but they're being used within the, the culture, the society in which you live, in order to cross barriers, in order to bring people into a new kind of community. 
So the gifting that God has given each one of us is a gifting to be utilized in order to bring others in to the body, to cross over class distinctions and draw people in. Where do we see this working out? Well, many years ago, I read a book called Same Kind of Different as Me. Anybody read that book? It's a remarkable small book about the true life story of two individuals. And in this particular book, um, Ron Hill meets Denver Moore. And they write this book together because they become friends. Ron's wife loves working in soup kitchens and working in, in uh, uh, mission outreach outposts throughout the city in Dallas, Texas. And brings Ron, who is a very well-to-do art dealer, with him, with her. And he kind of comes reluctantly. She loves it. She loves feeding the homeless, and she loves building relationships and serving those that are poor. Ron, who comes from this very well-to-do family and, and, and has acquired tremendous wealth through art um, collection and the sale of art, doesn't feel the same way. During one of their encounters, uh, there's a man that comes in, a homeless man, and he's angry, and he's screaming and yelling. And he's, somebody has stolen his shoes, and he's basically saying, I'm going to kill you, whoever stole my shoes, and he's pushing furniture around. And Ron's wife looks over and goes, that's the man in my dream. There's a man that I had in my dream that's going to change the city. I think that's the man, and you need to go meet him. And Ron, Ron is like, has nothing, doesn't want anything to do with it. And yet, reluctantly, he goes and meets Denver more, and they become friends. And the story is how these two men become friends and cross over these class distinctions, and one needs the other. Ron's going to need Denver in his life because he's about to lose his wife. Denver is being raised up from a man of little means, of a background that's sordid, and he is going to be restored and given new opportunity. And Ron's going to help him. It's a beautiful story. In fact, in one chapter, this is what happens when we start to do these kinds of things. It took a couple of months before I noticed a real change in my heart. A heart that was feeling like it had been run through the short cycle in a microwave. Warm on the outside, but still a little cool in the in the middle. I was fairly certain something happened when I began waking up on Tuesday mornings, mission day, and felt that some chill of excitement when I woke up on Saturday at Rocky Top. It wasn't a raising of the dead caliber miracle or anything like that, but folks who knew me would have classified it as a minor one at least. He began to feel his heart warmed toward his new friend. It's what happens. It's what happens when I believe we truly understand that God has gifted each and every one of us with certain gifts, some of them teaching gifts, some serving gifts, some gifts, financial gifts. We have been given tremendous giftedness through the grace of God in the community called faith. And they are not for ourselves. They are always for the edification of the body. Paul's going to talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we get into this letter. 
But what we notice, what Paul is doing is he's trying to break down those walls so that there's no division, that there's no rich or poor. There's, there's, no, there's an equality within the body of Christ that Garrett Thiessen is talking about when he says that we are applying this concept of love patriarchalism when we really do that. A woman at the beach came up to me after and said, I was just about to tug on your shoulder when you were speaking of this. For 30 years, I lived a divided life with my own mom. In fact, my counselor told me this last Thanksgiving that you don't need to spend Thanksgiving with her because of her abusive behavior in, my, in your life. And for 30 years, she experienced abusive relationship with her mom. She contracted, her mom contracted cancer and was living out her final days. And the last 10 days of her life, her mom's heart changed. She began to express her love and she began to apologize. And all of a sudden, this division, this disunity, this this separation of heart that's really at the the depth of where we're going here in this passage began to break. And this woman says, my heart changed. And I experienced the final 10 days of my mom's life, totally different relationship. Forgave her, built this, this road across this this gap, this, this widening gap of bitterness and anger. And I began to forgive her and experienced the relationship all over again. I think sometimes that's at the heart of why we don't cross over lines. Um, someone else came up to me after the service and said, someone told me the story that they were in a Chick-fil-A restaurant having a meal. And an employee came over with their meal and sat next to this person and saw a homeless person walk by and got up, walked over, and asked if they were hungry. Invited them in to the restaurant, sat them down, and gave them their meal. It's a true story. Went and got another meal and said, would you like to have a meal together? See, I think it's going to take that to bring together the unity of the ecclesia in the context of grace when we begin to have a meal with someone else from a different class of people. See, we really don't get it until we invite someone into our home that's totally different than ourselves. Or maybe take them out to lunch. Bring them into a personal space in your life. And I think that's the challenge. That's where Paul wants to drive us toward, to become the ecclesia that's filled with grace and all the gifts that we have, we have to be willing to open up our hearts towards other people that have, totally, that have nothing to offer us maybe, but we have something to offer them. Raising them up to a new standard, raising them up to a new value, a new humanity, as Gerd Thiessen says, he says, it's inequality of status that was extended to all, to women, foreigners, slaves. For in Christ there was neither Greek nor Jew, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all were one in Christ. Galatians 3, 
28. At the same time, however, all of this was internalized. It was true in Christ. In the political and social realm, class-specific differences were essentially accepted, affirmed, even religiously legitimated. No longer was there a struggle for equal rights, but instead a struggle, a struggle to achieve a pattern of relationships among members of various strata which would be characterized by respect, concern, and a sense of responsibility. Thus, even in the sense of the face of increasing difficult social circumstances as the world in antiquity was coming to a close in a period of growing social pressure, a new form of social integration was available in the church. I think that's where Paul's going. I think that's the message for us this year. I think that's what he's going to do through the mission and the outreach and the mindset of people that really get what the church is about infused with this grace so that we can really change the dynamic of who we are as people in Christ. The second thing that I notice in this passage is Jesus. Nine times we see Jesus mentioned. Nine times. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you by the by the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. I mean, over and over, the, we eagerly await the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The consummation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over, the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus. Do you notice the Lord Jesus Christ nine times? As a, why? Why is Paul kind of painting this picture of a church filled with grace, and then infuses this idea of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think at the heart and and the foundation of the church is understanding what Jesus did and what he demonstrated. And we find it here in this passage. We find this idea that we were, first of all, it says right here, we were sanctified in Christ. That's what Christ did for you. He sanctified you. The word means to be set apart. See, you are justified in in the sense it's a legal term to be justified. In the sense that that you stood before a judge and you were declared not guilty because what a Christ did for you. He took your place. You are not guilty. There is no shame. There is no guilt placed upon you because Christ has been put on you. The righteousness of Christ. And now Paul says you are also not just justified, you were sanctified. You were set apart. And what he's doing is he's describing this idea of consecration or holiness in the context of the church. You're a new community that's been set apart with a new ethos, with a new set of values, with new set of moral principles to guide your life. That's who you are. And one of the big problems in 1 Corinthians is that they were falling back to old patterns. I mean, there was, there were struggles in marriage and he has to talk about divorce. There was sexual immorality in the family, in the home, and he needs to address that. They, they, they were taking each other to court over squirmishes and, and relational conflict. And, and, and they were divided and they were competing and they were breaking down this very unity that God wants to build up by their behavior. 
And so Paul has to remind us of what Christ did. He sanctified us. He set us apart. He made us holy as a community. You see, it's done in the context of a church. It's, it's individual that you were sanctified, set apart to live a new life. But it's also something you experience within the community. But it's how you perceive yourself. Last year, my father passed away and we had a beautiful ceremony at um, my dad and my stepmom, Kim's home. And uh, it was a beautiful, small little memorial service. And afterwards, Kim invited all the guys into my dad's room, to his closet, and said, here, here are your dad's clothing, your, your dad's things. We'd love for you to pick something out that you'd like to take home and remember your dad by, your grandfather by. Many of the grandchildren were there as well. And my dad had a smaller frame, so I figured nothing was going to fit, even though it was bigger, and then he became 92, and he shrunk a little bit. So, um, but he had a bigger frame um, earlier in his life. And I remembered one jacket that he used to wear, and I have totally forgot about it, and Kim pulled it out, and it was covered in plastic. It looked beautiful, and I, I didn't really notice it before. It was a black, black sport coat. But when she handed it to me, I felt it. It was pure cashmere. It was made in Italy. It was a beautiful jacket. So I was hoping it would fit, and I put it on, and sure enough, it fit. Not, not perfectly, but it fit. And it's this beautiful 100% cashmere jacket made in Italy. I mean, it's just gorgeous, something that I would never go out and buy. And so I was able to wear it last night at a party, and, and it's just, it feels great. It looks great. It's, and what I realized about this particular jacket is it's something of value. And that's the way God looks at us, like a cashmere coat, made, handmade, stitched, something of beauty, something of value. And I would never wear that cashmere jacket down to the beach as a raincoat. I'd never wear it to go out and chop wood. I'd never do something crazy in this jacket like, you know, unplug a blocked drain and get down on my hands and knees in my jacket. It's not a work jacket. It's been set apart. It's a a value. It's something of beauty and of worth that I own. That's the way God wants us to see our bodies. It's the way he wants to see how he made us. When he sanctified us, we have to understand this, that what Jesus did is in this sanctification is that he sanctified not only your soul, but your body as well. And this is really important because what happened in the Corinth church is they began to separate the value of the body from the value of the soul. And they began to live out this spiritual sense of salvation and not the physical sense. And their morals began to decay. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's revitalizing the value of the body. And when when he mentions Jesus, Jesus is not only the one who accomplishes it, he also is the one who demonstrates it. Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Jesus of the Gospels. See, what Paul wants us to do is remember Jesus and what he did in the Gospels. And he demonstrated this beautifully as he went around and touched people. See, the religious community wanted him to stay away, didn't they? Don't touch. 
Don't touch someone that's unclean. Don't touch that person. Stay away from them. They're unclean. And what did Jesus do? He just reached in and touched people. He didn't care what they said. He, did, he knew that, that people are not unclean on the outside. It's being unclean on the inside that matters. He was restoring the heart. But I think he was doing something else. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, he meets the leper. And you read in that passage that he stretches out his hand and he touches the man, which is something you're not supposed to do. In fact, if you're a leper in the first century, your number one objective is to stay away from people that are clean, that are healthy. Stay away. Do not be touched. Protect yourself. And Jesus reaches in and touches him, most certainly to restore his heart, absolutely, to bring his love into his life. But I think something else is going on. He brings a healing to the body to show the value and importance of the human body in now living out faith in Christ. See, he went around touching and restoring and healing. Why? Because he cared about the body. Jesus cared about it. In fact, Paul is going to come back to this idea several times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he's going to say, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Take care of it. Chapter 6, verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. See, he's going to refer back to this idea of the body, the very body that Jesus touched, the leper, to bring healing. He says to the leper, get up and go offer sacrifices. See, every time he did that, he gave them new life. Go live a new life. That was the point. And it comes to a climax in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 51, when Paul will tell us about the resurrection of the new life. That all of our lives will be led up to this one point, that one day Christ will restore all of ourselves. Everything will be reestablished. That, that mortal will become immortal. In the flash of an eye, Paul says, I will change what has decayed, what has broken down. I will renew it and restore it, and you will have a new body. And as Lewis says in The Great Divorce, it will be greater than the first. And yet, what, what's happening here is Paul is establishing the value of living out real faith with new values, new principles that he's going to establish for us in the body. That it matters how you live your life. The choices you make represent your understanding of Jesus firmly in your life, who's the one who sanctified you. That's how important this whole passage is. And so as we go through this remarkable study, we're going to be looking at these two ideas of the grace-infused community that breaks down the dividing walls. And we're going to talk over and over about the moral choices, the, the new ethos that God gives us in Christ Jesus to live out in our bodies a different kind of life. And when we do that, it comes together to form a mosaic. And as the light shines through the mosaic, these fragmented pieces called you and I 
that have come together to become the ecclesia, the body, will shine the light of Christ in our community. And so we're rebuilding that image over this next season of our church's life through the reading and the focus of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, your word says that you have wonderfully crafted us, that all that you've done has has been at your hand, your handiwork. We are your workmanship. We are beautiful in your eyes as you continue to remake us and remold us and transform us. So this morning, there are some challenges in front of us. One is how we approach others in our world to reflect the ecclesia that's united by grace. And the other is how we treat our own bodies as instruments of righteousness, as Paul says, not of unrighteousness. And there might be some decisions that need to be made, some course corrections, some renewals, we wait on you for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we...